Good morning again, everyone. Wow, there's no one out there. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. It is, uh, it is good to see you. Happy New Year. Hope uh, your year's off to a good start. Um, I'm just excited about this year. I was telling people in the first service that have a unique opportunity coming up, and I would love for you to pray for me. Uh, so before we jump into the text, just going to share this request with you and just ask that you would uh, join with me uh, in praying. Um, but recently I was asked uh, by Spokane Community Colleges to give an address coming up on January 16th. And uh, believe it or not, I am going to be the keynote speaker for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yes, which typically uh, skinny white bald guys don't get the invite. <laughs> But, um, but I did, and uh, I am uh, looking forward to it. It's just a, it's a great honor and uh, an opportunity to communicate how faith really speaks into this idea of equality and that uh, we have so long allowed systems of uh, racism to kind of build up, and instead we're to be people who fight for justice. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity, but I have to also be honest, I'm nervous. All right, so I would love for you just to pray uh, with me and for me. Uh, it's a, a great opportunity for uh, Spokane Colleges locally to, to be able to address a really important subject, and I'm an honored to be able to do it, so please pray with me. I'm going to start off this morning, um, before we get into the text, just praying, and then i got a couple questions to ask you to get us rolling, okay? Let me pray. God, we uh, are grateful for the way you work and move in our lives Continue to do that. Continue to demonstrate your faithfulness. I know I am so in need of it, and uh, collectively we are as a community. So uh, demonstrate yourself, and may we follow in your wake as you lead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to show you a picture on the screen. I just took it off of, uh, off of the internet. Beautiful tool we have. And uh, what I want you to do is uh, you tell me what you believe it is a list of, okay? Here it is. Simple list. Downloaded it. Uh, This is what it says. I'll read some of them. Drink less alcohol. Eat healthy food. Get a better job. Get fit. Lose weight. uh, Save money. uh, Volunteer to help others. Any guesses on what this might be? Good. List of New Year's resolutions. You're one for one. Excellent. Now I'm going to show you another list. Okay? Here's the next list. Some of the things are lose weight, get fit, quit smoking, eat healthier and diet, spend more time with family, volunteer, drink less. Any guesses what this is? A list of the top 10 resolutions that most often get broken. All right? What, what, what you notice is they're basically identical lists. The exact same thing on both lists. The top 10 or 15 most common, and then the top 10 or 15 that get broken the quickest. So why do we do this to ourselves every year? Why do we start off the year with resolutions, with hopes, with desires, with dreams? Even if we know that in mere days they will be shattered. Why do we do it? I think the main reason that I'm convinced we do is because a new year for some reason begins to inspire hope. There is this belief that we can start over, that we can move into a new space, that we can have dreams about what's coming next, that we can be anticipating what might be on the horizon. And so, for some of us, some years, 
we like enjoyed the last year so much that we don't want to quite like move into the new year. Other years, like for me this year, I'm like, I'm so glad we are done with 2012 and I am ready to embark on this new year. I'm eager. I'm anticipating it. I can't wait. I want to see what God has in store. And uh, so I've been thinking a lot over the last couple of weeks about dreams, desires, goals, hopes, things that I want to see realized this year. I don't know if you do that same thing, but for me, I have two kind of categories. I have a list of goals that I would love to see happen. Goals are things that I believe are somewhat like rust-dependent versus uh, something they're like, I have to in some way uh, exercise my will to make them happen. So let me give you a couple of examples. I'd like to run a couple races this year, and so I have to put that on the calendar, and then I have to train for it, and then I've got to make sure that it happens. That's a goal, something that I'm seeking to accomplish or to take part in. Another example would be um, last Sunday, Kevin asked, what is the value you most need to live into this next year? So I kind of read through those values again, um, hospitality, generosity, being relational, contemplative, and concluded that for me, the value, and I'm going to start writing some goals related to this, the value I need to lean into the most is the recreational value. Uh, If you know me at all, I'm driven. It's finish one thing, go on to the next thing, dream about the next thing, keep going. And so there has to be in me this next year a sense of saying, okay, I need to appreciate and celebrate something that's happened before I move on to the next thing. And so leaning into that space of rest and Sabbath and figuring out what that rhythm looks like and how to do that better. And so that would be an example of a goal. For me, I also have, and maybe you do too, hopes or dreams, expectations, desires. They would be things where they're less dependent on me and more hopeful that God would move in them in some particular way. They create a posture of dependence rather than independence. So I'll give you a couple of those. Uh, One example is Shannon and I are hoping over the course of this year that, that God will just be really clear and articulate in our lives about whether to adopt again. We've really been pursuing that, looking into it, questioning it, and we would love, in this year, a definitive answer from him. Uh, Yes, do it, or no, don't. Um, So that's something we're wrestling through and praying and hoping for and desiring. Another example would be um, just a strong desire to see God open doors for me even more in the community. How do I lean into the neighborhood more? How do I continue to build relationships there? Uh, How do we get to know people How do I use uh, other things I'm involved in, like soccer, as uh, bridges and gateways into into this city? And so I'm asking God to move in that particular way. And so I'm sure for most of us in this room, unless you're like one resolution in life is to have no resolutions, that way you're always confident you'll succeed. Um, Unless that's your main goal, I would assume most of us at some level have ambitions, hopes, goals. And so here's what I want us to do, just to kind of get the ball rolling a little bit this morning. I want you just to turn to a neighbor and, uh, and to share with them really quick. Uh, this is something I'm hoping for, a goal that I have, something I'd like to see happen over the course of this next year. Now, you can make it real simple and be safe and just describe something that will mean you have no accountability at all. Or you can be bold and kind of declare something that you've really, really honestly have been hoping for. Either way, I'm going to give you about a minute. Just turn to someone next to you. You don't have to go out of your way very far. And just share really quick. Here's what I'm hoping for and why. And then they'll respond with a hope and why. Got it? One minute. Go.
Now, hopefully you've had a chance to just share with your neighbor really quick some goal, hope, expectation, dream. Hopefully you've been able to hear from someone else. But all of us, I assume at some level, have hopes and dreams and expectations for the year. And one of the questions I've been asking myself at the start of this year is this question. How would my hopes and dreams my expectations, my goals for this year change if I had no fear, but rather complete confidence in God? Would they change? And for me so far, the answer is, I think they would. I think I would risk a little bit more. I think I would step out with more boldness. I think I would be more adventurous. I think I would take more chances. So how would your goals or your hopes change if you had no fear but complete confidence in God? I came across uh, this verse in Luke chapter 12. If you have your Bible, turn there really quick. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is in the midst of uh, sharing with people. He's talking to them, teaching them describing what life in the kingdom looks like, how we're supposed to live, how we're called to live. And he gets to this one section in the middle of Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And uh, I love how the Bible heads it. It says, do not be anxious. And he says, uh, he says to all of the people that are around, he begins to describe to them this life. And he says some of these things in this section. I'm not going to read the whole section, but he says things like, do not worry. Don't be anxious. Have no fear. He talks about how we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. He talks about having clothes and not being in need. He talks about having food and not worrying about where that food will come from. He says, give to the needy and withhold nothing from anyone. He wraps it up by saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's describing all of these things. And right in the middle of this section, he says this. Verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a verse that for me this year is something that I'm seeking to lean into. To really say this again and again and again. Because I think life in the kingdom is a life that's filled with confidence in God. Life in the kingdom is a life filled with confidence in God. The reason I bring this up as we begin this series is because I believe... Um, Psalm 23 really speaks into this idea of who God is. It speaks into the very nature of Him and His relationship with us. And we're going to explore this over the next several weeks. Psalm 23, for most of you, is probably one of the most familiar psalms. I think it is probably one that is uh, the most familiar in our culture, in our world. It is uh, the psalm that comes up at every funeral, it seems. It is the one that, uh, in fact, the other day I sat down, flipped on the TV for about 10 minutes, was flipping through channels, 
all of a sudden came to this where there's a preacher standing in front of this casket with people along the side. Where does he quote from? Psalm 23. Psalm 23 has just been completely woven into our culture. You see it on TV shows. You hear it in songs. Here's a list. I just Googled a list of songs with Psalm 23 in them. Jesus Walks by Kanye West. Coolio Gets in the Mix. Puff Daddy. You Too, The Dead. Pink Floyd, Megadeth. Everybody is singing about Psalm 23. It's so woven its way into our culture. You see it all over the place. And I don't know that some of these songs might take some of you back a little while. Some of you, you don't even know who these people are. That's fine. But in our culture, there is this understanding that Psalm 23 kind of permeates things. We're so familiar with it, and yet our goal over the next four weeks is to just take a fresh look to reevaluate this psalm. And what my goal for this morning is, is to do two things. I want to give us a framework for how we can understand this psalm, because I think it's important for us to kind of build up a framework to give us eyes to see more clearly what this psalm is communicating. But the second thing I want to do, specifically this morning, is ask two questions of us, to really wrestle with a couple questions, to be okay with the tension that these questions will create, to not have to have immediate answers, to not have to come with a pat answer that's just like, oh yeah, this is how I'd answer this every single time, but to, to live in that tension, to be okay with it being unresolved for a little bit, to come back and to hear something the next week that reinforces how you're supposed to answer the questions. Alright, so that's the goal for this morning, framework and then questions. Here's the framework that I want to give you. The first piece, and I'm just going to go through these really quick, the first piece is this, that uh, don't read Psalm 23 alone. Don't read Psalm 23 alone. I don't mean don't read it just by yourself and not in community. It's always good to read Scripture in community. But what I mean by this is that Psalm 23 is in a specific context. Psalm 23 is a part of three psalms, really. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 can be read together. Specifically, Psalm 22 and 23. The way that the Psalter was combined really bears great significance in its context. So what I mean is Psalm 22. If you were to read what Psalm 22 is about, it is a psalm of deep lament. The psalmist is crying out. There's this this great struggle between despair and faith. He says that this is kind of this back and forth pendulum where he says, God, you're never around. You've left me all alone. And then a moment later he says, you're always with me. And then he goes back to, my enemies are all around. They're beating me down. This is horrible. Life stinks. But you're right next to me and I can trust in you. And then back to, I, I have nothing and then you're all I need. And he goes back and forth and back and forth. Despair, faith, despair, faith. And it's this psalm of lament. And it's followed by Psalm 23, which is a psalm of confidence. That there's nothing shaking David as he writes this psalm. That he has absolute dependence, reliance, a sense of ease. That he can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he wraps up 
Psalm 23 by saying that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then Psalm 24 says, these are the conditions for dwelling in the house. This is what it means to be holy in the presence of God. It begins to describe that. So when you read Psalm 23, don't read it just in isolation. Read it in its context. Help you to understand it a little bit more to wrap our mind around the idea that it is part of a unit. Alright, the second Second idea is the main idea of Psalm 23 is at its center. One of the literary devices of Old Testament writers is to start with an idea that points us toward the center of the text and everything flowing into the center and then things flow away from the center. But the very main idea, the very core concept is found at the center. We write in a completely different way. We either start with a topical sentence It kind of uh, states why we're writing what we write. And then often what we do is try to crescendo at the end with this massive conclusion that like brings everything together. And we create some points in the middle that reinforce our argument. But this particular psalm, and many like it, and other passages within the Old Testament, point and direct the reader toward the center of the text. Now at the very center of this text is a simple statement. You are with me. Or in King James, Thou art with me. The very center idea in this particular psalm is the idea that God is present. We just went through Advent where we talked about the Incarnation. We talked about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. That He is present with us. That the Holy Spirit is a part of our very lives if we're in relationship with God. That there is this closeness of God. This presence of Him. So as we go through this month, whatever observations, whatever you get out of the text, whatever this passage is speaking to you, it should come back at some level to this idea that God is present and that changes everything. The third idea is this, Psalm 23 is about the shepherd, but it highlights the lacking sheep. You are going to hear, over the next several weeks, a lot being communicated about the awesome nature of the shepherd. The qualities and characteristics that he possesses. The way that God is everything that any of us will ever need. But in the midst of it, we will also recognize the utter utter frailty of sheep. So we need to understand this, that the value of the shepherd is in direct proportion to the vulnerability of the sheep. The value of the shepherd is in direct proportion to the vulnerability of the sheep. We have an inability to provide for ourselves. We are vulnerable. We're weak. We're going to see that highlighted throughout this text. We're even going to come to the conclusion that the welfare of the sheep without the shepherd is bleak at best. There is an absolute dependence on us as lacking sheep for our shepherd. The fourth and final is this, that Psalm 23 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Psalm 23 is descriptive, not prescriptive. Here's what I mean by that. 
There is not a single statement, there's not a single exhortation for us in this passage to do anything. For us, I think that should be refreshing. I don't know about you, but so many times I come to the text and I start to read it, and I'm probably reading through a lens of religiosity, I'm probably reading through this need to like find approval, and so I see a list that I've got to accomplish, something I have to change, something I have to fix, something I could be better at, and if I'm better at that, do this, get this. And the beauty of this particular passage is there's none of that. That it's all about this relationship with God. It's all about a description of what that's like. And the challenge for us is just to lean into, to accept, to acknowledge, to come to the realization that this is indeed true. That what it states about who God is, what it states about who we are, is a description of the character and the quality of God. All right, That should give us a little bit of framework to work off of. And what I want to do for the remainder of the time is just highlight two questions. Two things that I want us to just kind of wrestle with over the next week. So that when we come back, we can begin to hear this text in a new way. This is real simple, it's really basic, and it's found off the first verse, which is what we're looking at today. Psalm 23.1. I'll read it again. It says this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you were to write it in a more literal translation, it would be this, Yahweh shepherding me, I am not lacking. Yahweh shepherding me, I am not lacking. What I want to do ask two questions. The first question is this. Is the Lord really my shepherd? In your case, is the Lord really your shepherd? Now there's two particular ways that you could look at this question. First way that you could look at it is to ask the question, do you personally have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship where you know God and you are known by God? Do you have that concrete, real, tangible relationship with Him? If not, then that obviously needs to be addressed. If you do, this question should cause us to ask maybe the same question in a different way. Maybe you could ask it this way. Whom or what is shepherding me? Whom or what is shepherding me? Is there someone or something that I have begun to look to other than God that has replaced God and I now find that to be or that person to be my shepherd? Jesus gives this uh, illustration in John chapter 10. You're probably familiar with the passage. He begins to describe himself as the true shepherd. And what he does is he juxtaposes who he is as a true shepherd with who someone is that is a thief or a robber or a hired hand. So he's describing the difference between the two. This is what it says in the text. You can just look on the screen. 
John chapter 10, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he is saying to them. That's probably the most reassuring verse for preachers. That if Jesus could say something and nobody get it, then equally I can. So Jesus again said to them this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, that it might be full and complete. He then says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is saying that we have a true shepherd, and we also have what would be described as false shepherds. He contrast the two. And I think many times in our culture, many times in our very nature, we have a desire and a longing for false shepherds. Some would call them idols, something other than God, something that replaces Him as the shepherd, the leader, the go-to of our very life. We begin to find our identity, our worth, our value, our hope in these other things other than God. So you tell me, what are some of those, not for you necessarily, but for people in general, what are some of those idols, what are some of those false shepherds that begin to replace the preeminence of Christ in our life? Money. Money. Good. What else? Relationships. Pleasure. Career. Security. Media, comfort, sports, religiosity, health, the American dream. I mean, we could probably keep going for a while. Power and socioeconomic systems and and, and all types of relationships whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, you know, you name it, work relationships, this desire for attention, approval. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. And what we begin to do is we have this false shepherd where we begin to find in that shepherd our support, 
our significance, our security. That something else begins to replace the true shepherd. So that we can't necessarily say, the Lord is my shepherd. We have to say, something else is my shepherd. And typically, false shepherd experiences go like this. I'll just give you the, just the general rundown of what it looks like to have a false shepherd. What we do is we <clears throat> choose a false shepherd. Just assume here for a moment there is some item, some person, some relationship, some uh, desire, a job, a, a dollar value, some significance. We place it in this thing or this person. And then what we do is we load this false shepherd with unrealistic expectations. We say that this very thing will provide everything I need. That this thing will be my hope. It will be the thing that I pursue. It's the thing I chase after. I'm going to, once I acquire this, have complete happiness. Once I acquire this, I'll be at peace. Once I have this relationship, once you get the idea, whatever this thing is, I'm pursuing it and I heap huge, unrealistic expectations. And then, it isn't quite going the way we anticipate. And so what we do is we begin to manipulate the situation or the person to begin to meet our deepest soul needs. And so we just keep working to manipulate the situation. We keep trying to change, trying to acquire, to reach for whatever it is that will ultimately bring satisfaction to us. And we think if we manipulate it enough for the person enough, or if we do something to change the circumstances enough, that we will somehow find it eventually in this false shepherd. And then we move to the next stage, which is we become bitter and discouraged because the shepherd is not meeting our expectations. We start to get frustrated. This thing is not working. I wish that it was different. I I just continue to pursue it, and it's letting me down again and again and again. And so then we start to make the decision to switch from this shepherd to a different false shepherd. And right about the time where we're deciding to switch to a different false shepherd is the time that we get really pissed at God and we say, God, you're screwing this up because my false shepherd didn't work. It's weird. God gets blamed for all of it. And he's not even a part of it. Because he's sitting over here going, hey, anytime, come and get it. I am here, I am present, I want, and we're chasing it, we're heaping expectations on it, we're getting bitter because it isn't working out, we're wishing that it would be different, then we get angry at him because this isn't working, and then we switch and we find another false shepherd. I mean, that's the pattern throughout Scripture. It's the pattern, I think, that we continue to live into, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, And I think we need to sit on it a little bit this week. Who or what is shepherding you? Can you, can I truly say with complete confidence this morning that the Lord is my shepherd? It's okay to say no. Not forever, but presently. It's okay to acknowledge, you know what? He might not be right now. And something will change. But until we get to the place where we begin to acknowledge the possibility that he might not be, I think we find ourselves continuing down this typical 
false shepherd experience. Which leads us to question number two. You probably know where this question is going based on the verse. Can I honestly say I lack nothing? Can I honestly say I lack nothing? The text says, I shall not want, or I lack nothing. Another rendering we could use is this. I have everything I need. I have everything I need. Now, I want us to try something really quick. I want us to say this all together aloud and very slowly. Ready? I have everything I need. Now it flows, but I don't know that I can honestly say that. I don't know that you can honestly say that. I think there are times where we would say, well, what did David really mean here? What was he really trying to say? We start to splice it. Was he like talking about material possessions, just things? Or was he really getting after like emotional needs? Or maybe he was talking about relationships. Or maybe this was strictly a spiritual thing. And so like, I can say that I have everything I need spiritually. Yes, absolutely. And yet be really disappointed with everything that I have in a different area. Because they're separate. Really quick, in the Hebrew, the answer is yes. It's all of it. He means all of it. He means emotionally, relationally, physically, spiritually, materially, all of it. He's saying that I lack nothing. That everything, I have everything I need. So can we honestly say that? For me, to be honest with you, it is probably a moment by moment thing. There are some moments I can go, yeah, yeah, I feel like I could utter, I have everything I need. And then other moments where I go, huh, not even close. I don't feel like I could say that. Let me give you an example. My parents were here on vacation. We had a spectacular time. As soon as they left, like the day they left, the water heater in our house just went kaput. It was done. Okay? Now, um, it was good. I'm glad that it was here when they were here, but uh, I knew that this was a problem, no hot water, and uh, it's the middle of winter. It would be chilly. And so I said, we got to remedy this. And so I did what I normally do when there's a mechanical problem. I just ignore it and pray that it goes away, okay? So I'm just being honest with you. So, like, we needed a water heater, and I went, well, maybe we can wake up tomorrow, and there'll be hot water. Maybe something will just kind of happen, and I will, we'll get up, and we'll turn it on, and then, voila, it's hot water. It's the same thing I do with my car. I mean, honestly, like, I, I, this has happened before. I'm driving down the road, and it just stops, like, it's supposed to keep running, but it doesn't. I coast over to the side. You know, my family's in the car. Going, Psh. So I get out like, you know, what guys are supposed to do. I pop the trunk. Hood. Lift it up. You can tell how often I usually say I pop the trunk. So I pop the hood, right? I, I push it up. I, I go around to the front. And I'm like, engine's still there. This is good. 
I kind of look and I go, there's nothing that seems to be hanging out. And then I stand there for about a minute. My wife thinks I'm doing something probably. And I just pray, Lord, I have no idea. But I would love to shut the hood. I'd love to get back in and then I'd love to keep driving. Can you make that possible? And then I close it. I get around, I hop in, she's like, hey, what? And I'm like, oh, we're good. Turn it on, and literally, it's happened before, and then drive off. And it's never, <laughs> never bothered me again. It's weird. I, it is definitely God. But I do that with mechanical things, because I have no aptitude, no mechanical aptitude at all. So I decide to do the next thing, which is, okay, I've got to do something about it. I can't just ignore it. It's still cold. So I do what I do next, which is, like, I research it. I study it, I try to figure it out, I call some friends and say, okay, what do I do? And then I convince myself that this time, this project will go smoothly. All of my others do not, but somehow I will reach the pinnacle of home improvement and I will do it myself. And so I go in and we've got this, uh, this weird layout in our basement. And so it's kind of like a, a crawl space that it's in. It's like a really short area, dirt floor, it's really... It's kind of nasty back there. So I, I crawl in there, and I start taking out the old one, pull out, you know, the gas lines are off, and they're shut off, and the uh, water's shut off, and it's off. And so now the only thing I have to do is drain this thing and then get it out. And so I hook up the drain, turn it on, no water coming out. I'm like, this is weird. It's supposed to work. I YouTube it. Try it again. <laughs> Nothing. So I'm like, well, every time they drained it on YouTube, it was like still hooked up. Maybe you have to hook it up again. So I hook it up again, try to drain it, nothing. Now I'm getting frustrated. I have no idea what to do. So uh, I find out from some people that maybe there's sediment in the bottom and the water just can't get out. So I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So I get a hanger and I'm like shoving it up the hole, try to break loose the sediment. No, no luck. At this point, I should realize that like the fifth law of thermodynamics for us is something will go bad, and it will on every project. And it was right about the time where I knew something was going to go bad, but I didn't know what. So I figured it's just not going to get drained. And so we decide one last thing. This is probably a really stupid idea, and for all of you that are great with mechanics, okay? Um, I, I go, maybe it just needs to kind of get loosened a little bit. So I take my hammer... I'm in this crawl space, and I just, I just tap on the spigot. Just tap on it to just go, maybe it'll, it'll loosen it a little bit. Well, it loosened it. it I tap, and the, it just fell off. So now in this like crawl space that's about this wide by this, 50 gallons of water just like crushing me. And I yell out loud, and I don't think what I yelled was, I shall not want. <laughs> At that moment, I've been studying this all week, and I'm going, God, i got a lot of wants right about now. I want this water gone. I want this problem solved. I want to be done with this. I, I mean, this is disaster. This is horrible. And we can kind of make fun of this idea. We can joke about it a little bit, but can we actually in any circumstance, in any situation, make the statement, God, I, I lack nothing. That I have everything I need. 
Here's another way maybe to ask the question. I am completely satisfied with God's management of my life. Can you say that? I am completely satisfied with God's management of my life. How He's managing my relationships. How He's taking care of my resources. How He's providing for my family. How He's sustaining me in my job, my area of employment my career. Can I make that statement? Here's another way to say it. I can't think of anything God could give me that would make me more content. Can I say that? I can't think of anything God could give me that would make me more content. What the psalmist is saying is that I don't need anything. I lack nothing. That it is here. It's present. I don't need to worry. And the reason I don't need to worry is the first part, because the Lord is my shepherd. I asked you two questions this morning. There are two questions that I've been asking myself all week, and I will continue to ask myself this next week. And that is, is the Lord really my shepherd? Or have I somehow began to place my identity in this false shepherd? Have I such subtly began to direct my attention to something else that will complete or satisfy or make me whole. And then the second question is, can I honestly say I lack nothing? Can I say that I'm completely satisfied with the way God is managing my life right now? And like I said at the beginning, I don't want us to answer these quickly. I don't want us to go, yeah, absolutely. For sure. I want us to wrestle with it. To really say, God, can I say these things? Can I with confidence stand up? Could I turn to someone near me and they ask me these questions and I can go, absolutely, and here's why. And I don't want us necessarily to have an answer right now, but what I want us to do is to reflect on this. We're going to take communion. We're going to just sing a song or two and just wrap up our time. And I want us over this month to really look at this passage, and to allow the rest of what it says to redefine our answers to these two questions. All right, let's pray.